0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Well, Christmas is obviously um, let's let's throw some words kind of in front of us here. Christmas is obviously about things like uh, joy. That sounds like a Christmas word, right? Joy, uh, peace, uh, light. Uh, we know Christmas to be the story of um, of a birth that delivers another important word. It delivers hope uh, to the world. Uh, we know that from this Christmas narrative that these uh, unexpected and unusual. Uh, visitors come uh, to witness the birth and to see the child. Angels appear. Uh, really cool gifts are given. Uh, the whole thing about Christmas is this. It's, it's kind of happy and it's fun and it, it lifts the spirit. And I think that's the reason why even the world outside the church is super okay with Christmas as opposed to any other time of the year, say, for example, like, like Easter, it's because Christmas just lifts the spirits. It's the perfect story for children to hear, for children to act out. Am I right? Do I have it right? Does that sound like Christmas? It's just fun and joy-filled. But as much as we might talk about all of that, we're not so naive as to not also understand that there's a tremendous amount of pain associated with this time of year, of trial, and even of tragedy for many. And sometimes it's hard to reconcile the joy-filled experience of Christmas with our actual experience of tragedy and difficult life circumstances in our own lives, and many of you, I'm not—it's not lost on me. It, it's not lost on you that since the last time we celebrated Christmas, some of you have lost loved ones, and you're you're just days away now from a Christmas dinner where you know, as joyful as you'll try to make that, people that were there last year aren't going to be there this year. There's pain associated with Christmas. And by the way, that feeling doesn't come just because of the... You're facing it for the first time, but it seems to me that when a loved one isn't there, that that's year after year after year. You remember they're not here anymore. And beyond the death of loved ones... Many of you in this room since the last time we celebrated Christmas have experienced setbacks of all kinds and new difficulties have cropped up in your lives. Things that will put a cloud over this season, it's simply unavoidable for you. And this for me begs several questions. Let me ask these of you. Should Christmas always and only be about joyful things? Is there no pain in the Christmas narrative that I can identify with? Is there no tension? Is there no tragedy? If I'm struggling, as many of you might be this season, if I'm struggling, is there nothing in the story for me? Well, in fact, there is a tragic part, a painful heartbreak in this narrative that is never, never depicted in Christmas plays and pageants that I've seen. I mean, I'm, I'm more than five decades into my life, so I've, I've seen a lot of Christmas pageants and Christmas plays and musicals. I've, I've put a bathrobe on myself and played the part of a shepherd. Never once... Have I ever seen this part of the narrative? Very much a part of the Christmas story. Never once have I seen the tragedy of Christmas play out. And yet its inclusion in the gospel right here in the heart of the account of the Magi lets us know, listen, the very reason why Jesus came in the first place. Why this tragic part of the story, the part that those of us who are in pain this Christmas can identify with, why it's even here. The very reason Jesus came to heal the deepest hurts that we have. To give us a way to triumph over these painful setbacks. And so we're going to be back in Matthew 2 uh, this week to see more about the Magi and what is often called, this is the tragedy what is often called the slaughter of innocents. And we're going to see this in order to understand that the birth of Jesus brings tragedy to light and offers triumph to a hurting world. So let's pray together and commit this uh, time to the Lord as we look at his word. Father, as we uh, get together again uh, here today and we consider this um, very a sober-minded topic. We need, once again, your grace and your mercy. We need love from you. God, we need courage. We need wisdom. We need insight to grasp these truths and, and then to live them out. Really to, to find comfort and care and encouragement. I pray especially for those who are in the midst of a more difficult season that they would find hope, Father, in the midst of the trouble and the tragedies that we all face. So God, teach us and show us, lead us as we open your word now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, the birth of Jesus brings tragedy to light and offers triumph to a hurting world. Let's see this first, that uh, trouble births tragedy. Trouble births tragedy. There's kind of a cascading thing with that. I think we all understand that in our lives we have trouble, and that trouble very often, uh, probably for all of us, at some point in our life is going to lead to something tragic happening in our lives. I'll I'll put a little disclaimer on the front end of this first point that uh, it's a bit of a beat down. It's a little hard to take a little sobering. Let's read uh, the first eight verses of uh, chapter two. This is Matthew's gospel, chapter two. We looked at the first two verses last week, but we're going to include them here for context again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come uh, to worship him. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now notice that uh, Herod was troubled right in verse 3. He was troubled by the question the Magi had asked. In fact, we could say that he was troubled by the very presence of the Magi. Uh, The verse goes on to say that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. That word troubled means to stir up, to agitate. It very definitely has a a, um, negative connotation to it. That they were upset by the very presence of the Magi in their city. And certainly Herod was upset by the question. After all, Herod has the crown on his head. And the question the Magi come and ask him is... Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now, if you're the king and you heard there's a new king, how many people would just agree that's a problem? That's a problem. And that the trouble, the agitation that Herod is feeling here is justified, at least in his own mind, because he sees this new king as being a usurper to the throne, even though he himself is not the legitimate heir to the Jewish throne. Now Jerusalem's all upset with him. They're just as agitated, just as stirred up. And, and 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 likely the largest part of that is this entourage, this caravan of magi appear. They're foreigners. Uh, their reputation goes before them. We've already talked a little bit about them, that they were uh, political advisors. They were uh, men who read the stars and interpreted them. And that played out in religious and political ways. And one of the things they had to reputation for doing was being kingmakers because they would predict the rising and falling of kings. And so as they come into town now, these Jewish people who are living in Jerusalem, who are under Roman occupation, who are enjoying what was called in history the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome brought to the Mediterranean world, they're enjoying that. So for sure they had to surrender their independence as Jewish people and they weren't an independent country of Israel. They were a province called Judea within the Roman Empire. But there came with that a certain amount of stability and prosperity and peace. And sometimes people are willing to forego their personal liberties in order to enjoy those things. These magi showing up and talking about a new king could upset that whole thing. And they were wondering... That if there's a new king, if there's a power struggle, if there's a rebellion, will that result in some repercussions coming from the Roman armies? And could we expect to be a more oppressed than we already are? The uneasy tension with Rome being upset... It was a politically charged situation for everyone, hence the sense that they were troubled by all of this. And so Herod wants to get to the bottom of it, and he's smart enough, uh, verse 4 says, to call in all of the chief priests and all of the scribes. So he's bringing all of the religious leaders in. At the time, no separation of church and state. In fact, exactly the opposite in Israel. A church and state, or the faith community and the political community were one. And so... um, he calls them all in. And uh, where exactly this new king, I know there's a prophecy, these magi have shown up. Now, um, where exactly is this king supposed to be born? And they, uh, verse 5 and 6, identify it as uh, the town of Bethlehem. Uh, They're quoting here from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, 2. And so they give Herod the information. And uh, he sends the chief priests and the scribes out of the room and he brings the magi back in the room. He's, he's so wily, he's so smart as a, as a king that he never has the magi and the chief priests in the room at the same time so that they could exchange information with one another. And, and so he's manipulating all of the information to his own adva- advantage so he can make the right play here. And so he tells the magi... Verse 8, he sends them to Bethlehem and he charges them. He says, now when you find the child, make a diligent search. And when you find him, make the trip back here to Jerusalem. Let me know. And, and then what he says next is the very reason people don't trust politicians. Okay, this is it. Because Herod says here, what does he say? So that I too may come and... Worship him. Now, how many people here believe the politician? Anybody? Do you believe the politician? Is his intention to go and worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, No, it is not. No, it is not. He only has malicious intent toward the young child. Really, the request here is so full of meaning. The request that they would come back. That they would go and search for him and bring news. There's so much dramatic tension being built up in this moment that if you just read through it quickly and you don't stop to pause and think about what's really going on here, you might miss it. That in this very moment is where the troubled nature of what's going on in the city and inherit, where the trouble is going to become tragedy... That when Herod says, come back and tell me. If this were Hollywood making this into a movie, this is where you would, the the music, just the low music would begin to build and the scene would get a little darker and the look of anguish on certain people's faces and you would get the sense, everybody would be understanding that Herod is acting in his own interest and that he has murderous intent in his heart. No one would miss it. That the trouble is birthing tragedy. Verse twelve, which is a verse we're going to look at next week, we're going to as part of next week's passage. After they had visited the child and his family, notice verse twelve: the magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. The magi could not have imagined what would have happened next, and what their visit triggered. Look now at verses 16 through 18. So the Magi take off. They don't go back to Jerusalem. They take a different route home. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. Herod's rage provoked him to order what is called the slaughter of innocents. And this is what the visit of the Magi triggered. And it would be hard, almost impossible for us to imagine this. To imagine this part of the story as part of the nativity narrative. Again, in all of my years of watching Christmas plays and musicals and pageants, I've often seen the manger at the front with a, with a child in it representing the Lord Jesus. I've, I've often seen that, but not once have I seen a scene with multiple male children laying on the stage, slaughtered at the hands of Herod's soldiers. Not once have I seen that. It'd be hard for us to imagine... we want to ignore it but sadly it's not even something that's exclusive this kind of destruction of human life of innocent human life this isn't even just unusual and and just a part of the scriptures because in my lifetime in the lifetime of many in this room you know these things have repeated themselves over and over and over again in our history just in the last really several decades. We could speak of the genocide in Cambodia. We could speak of Rwanda, where people were slaughtered, whole families slaughtered, simply because they belonged to one tribe or another. The ethnic cleansing that took place in Bosnia, or what's happening even today, right now, as we gather in Syria and in northern Iraq. Not just soldiers being killed, but whole families, women, and children destroyed. State-sponsored genocide and murder. Herod's actions are sadly all too common in our broken world. And why rehearse all of this today? Why, Why look at it? when you read the nativity narrative to your own families, is it not true that you skip this part of it? Instead of telling our children, reading it and telling them, our world's broken. And this is the very reason. see, this is the point. That this is exactly why Jesus needed to come. That the very rationale for the birth of the child is the slaughter of innocence. Because of the horrific and tragic things that happen to all of us. That is the point. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans eight twenty two. We know, he wrote, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. His point in that passage is simply this, that the world groans under the weight of sin and its effects and is awaiting a hope. Let's list some of the tragedies we face today. I could start with the slaughter of innocents with regard to abortion. The slaughter of vulnerable with doctor-assisted suicide. The tragedy of poverty and homelessness right in our own city. The tragedy of, of sexual and gender identity confusion in our culture today. The tragedy of displaced peoples, refugees around the world. The tragedy of war, the sad state of marriage in our society, drug and alcohol abuse, child abuse, violence against women the tragedy of sickness, the tragedy of death, the world groans. We groan under the weight of it. Even at Christmas, with all of the busyness, with all of the positivity that we try to attach to it, with all of the distractions of meals and gatherings and shopping and gift-giving and singing, even with all of that, we can't forget that we groan under the weight of it all. Even this story, these, these amazing magi come and make their visit. And tragedy falls in a small town of unknowing shepherds and their families who are so far from, removed from the power politics of the day. A voice is heard in Ramah. Loud weeping. And lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted, for they are no more. I think we'd all agree that that lament is very appropriate, that grief in that moment and in the moment of our own tragedies is appropriate. I'm sure many of those mothers and fathers who were there with their slain baby boys, would have asked the question that so many of us asked, asked in the midst of our own tragedies and trials. The question is, why? Why us? Why this town? Why my baby boy? Maybe you've asked the question. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you know anything about the Word of God, that even when you ask the question, you already know the answer. We ask the question out of our anguish and our pain. But if we remember what we believe, we know why these things befall us. We may not want to admit it. We may still want to shake our fist at God. We may still be in our torment, but we know why. When it comes to your personal tragedy, don't be asking the question. Don't wonder, why is this happening to me? Because the answer, while difficult to accept, is easy to understand. It's happening to all of us. The tragedies of life, all of them, are rooted in the curse of sin and in the condemnation of death that hangs over us as a result. The greatest of all tragedies is the separation that exists between humanity and God. And that's exactly what God is addressing by sending His Son, Emmanuel, Matthew 1 tells us maybe that he's to be called Emmanuel, God with us. The reason for sending him is to remedy the biggest of tragedies, the, the sin that has consumed us, the condemnation of death that is over us, and then to help us understand all the other tragedies that flow out from that. So he sent his son, the birth of Jesus Christ, to deliver hope and salvation it would come in the form of this this little boy that the Magi had visited. The very thing that prompted the slaughter of innocents as if to punctuate in real time right at the moment of, of his coming the desperate need we had for him to come in the first place. Trouble births tragedy. But listen now, how many people are ready to turn the corner on that and are glad the message isn't ending here? You're glad glad for that? Listen, tragedy births triumph. Tragedy births triumph. So God's plan, of course, is to bring about a reversal of our human tragedies. The child, the Magi visited, of course, is bringing hope and healing. And in verses 13 through 15, again, part of the passage for next week, we see that Joseph and Mary escape to Egypt, live as refugees and asylum seekers in a foreign land. They escape to Egypt to save the child from Herod's murderous intent. And the triumph begins as the young family then makes their way back to Israel at the end of that time. Let me read verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, unless we see that tragedy births triumph, we condemn ourselves to really a dark and hopeless existence. We end up staying in that whole first part of the message. Yes, we have trouble. Yes, we're in tragedy. And then we lock ourselves right there. The triumph comes as Jesus and his parents return, that there is hope even in the midst of the tragedy that happened. And we can't allow tragedies, not, not past tragedies, not things that have befallen us in the past, not things that are happening right now, not the prospect that things could get hard in the future. We can't let any of those things consume us or we will miss the great thing that God is doing to reverse the curse in our lives. So I thought it'd be helpful for us to even think about three reasons why we might miss out on The triumph. Three reasons why you might miss out on the triumph that God is giving. A first is wallowing in your personal tragedy. Wallowing in your personal tragedy. Becoming a sad sack. Always in mourning. Always lamenting. This is the person with an oh-woe-is-me attitude. And certainly for the follower of Jesus Christ, that does not project the triumphant spirit that should be part of anyone who has Christ. It's inconsistent with being a follower of His. I'm not saying, of course, that you put on a happy face or a fake smile, and ignore the issue. I'm talking about not sinking into it and allowing it to dictate every aspect of your life. I knew a man once. I, I think he's now uh, passed from this life, but um, dad and mom would know him. And uh, grew, we grew up, I grew up in Montreal North. Mom and dad grew up in Montreal North. And uh, the hamburger joint for people in Montreal North was a place called Dick Hands. And um, best hamburgers on the planet, if you ask anybody from Montreal North. And uh, we would always go there, and Dad got to know the owner fairly well and did some work for him over the years. And uh, we, of course, moved away from, from Quebec many years ago, but we would go back on trips to Montreal. And on one occasion, he had opened up another restaurant on the West Island, and we were visiting family, and we stopped in the restaurant, and there he was. And so Dad sat down, and we sat down, and we had our burgers, and we talked to the owner. His wife had died maybe 20 years before that. And the curious thing was, because he and his wife had opened that original restaurant, he had decided he would never again set foot in the original restaurant. And he never did. Just couldn't bear to go back there because of his grief over losing his wife. And beyond that, as we continued to hear him, this man certainly was not a believer in any sense. He did not have Christ or the hope of Christ in his life. We found out in talking to him that he had not missed, since the day she died he had not missed every single day going to her graveside and sitting there and talking to her. Now that's a person who's lost in grief, who never overcame the loss and the lament, and who allowed it to mark their life wallowing, wallowing in the grief, wallowing in the tragedy of losing his wife. And it's so hopeless. There's an appropriate way to grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4 makes that super clear. That we are to grieve, and he's speaking to believers, we are to grieve when we lose loved ones, but we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. As the man in, in the story grieved. Not wallowing you see, we have inside of us, Colossians one twenty seven says, we have inside of us the hope of glory. The glory is the triumph. That's the thing we're aiming for. And so don't miss out on the triumph because you're wallowing in your grief. Secondly, don't miss out on it because you're settling for your personal tragedy. This is, this is beyond the grief part. You make no attempt to overcome it, to move on, to re-engage in life. Some people are simply paralyzed by setbacks and can do nothing else but manage what's right in front of them. This is, I got a trial going on. This is the only thing I can handle. I I got to pull myself out of everything else. I can't go to my small group. I can't serve in my place of ministry. It can't do anything. And certainly sometimes there are trials and they are big enough and tragedies befall us and that's the only thing we can do. I get when that can happen, but too often we move the lines and we take any trial and every tragedy and we make that a reason to just settle into it and let that be your life. For the followers of Christ at some point we have to pick ourselves up and move on in the strength of the Lord but there are some who have lived so long in their tragic circumstances allowing themselves to stay there that they can forget that there is an alternative and there is a way to rise above and there is a way to push through and live with tragedy if God allows that in your life to live with it in a a healthier way that honors the Lord. So not wallowing in it not settling for it. And thirdly, this, not not resigning yourself to personal tragedy. See, even if tragedy has not yet struck you personally, you might be the person who has resigned themselves to defeat in advance. Refusing to get engaged in life and mission and relationships because, you know, it's all going to come crashing down eventually. The follower of Jesus Christ shouldn't live with that kind of fatalism or that kind of paranoia about what might be. Do we not understand that God gives us grace in the right measure at the right time for everything that he allows or or, or ordains in our lives? That, that, That God's strength is made perfect in our weakness as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, that his grace, his grace is sufficient for me. You see, none of these things, not wallowing, not settling, not resigning ourselves to these things, none of these will ever produce a healthy or happy situation for you or for those around you. Jesus' followers do what we see Mary and Joseph doing here. We're talking about triumph. And I look at Mary and Joseph and they're, they're kind of like the most ordinary people on the planet. They come from this little, little town. This is a blue collar guy, just a working class guy. She's kind of young. Neither one of them have made their mark in the world. Nobody thinks very much of them. They make the trip to Bethlehem all on their own. They make the trip to Egypt on their own, family of three, just trying to make their way in the world. No one noticing them. And yet, listen, we're talking about triumph here. You can write this down. Mary and Joseph won. They won. They triumphed over every circumstance that came their way. We could do with a little bit more Mary and Joseph in our lives. They lived at a time of brutal oppression that touched them Personally. I mean, as I, as I read the story, we don't have a lot of details on this, obviously, but I, and I think about the escape to Egypt. They escaped. They just left. And, but I think about what that must have been like. I mean, just think about it. The angel shows up. Joseph has a dream. You need to leave and go to Egypt. So do you think that Joseph wakes up from the dream and waits till the next morning to get things ready? I mean, the escape had to have happened at night, right? He has the dream. He wakes up. Mary, wake up get the baby, we're packing up our things, we're out of here. I imagine they left a lot of things in the house where they were living, and they didn't take everything with them. I imagine they grabbed those gifts they got from the Magi, and they packed that in, and a few clothes, and and some things to eat, and some water, and they threw it on their animals, and off they were gone. In my own mind, I imagine that as they were leaving town and escaping down the road to Egypt that coming in from the other end of the village i just imagine they heard the hooves of the horses coming from Herod's soldiers i imagine they might have heard the banging down of doors and the and the screams and the wailing of mothers they lived at a time of brutal brutal oppression They moved to Egypt, a foreign land. It couldn't have been easy to be there away from their own people for an undetermined length of time and how long are we going to be here and can we ever go home again? I imagine that every time they went down to the marketplace and Mary was shopping for food for the family and she just happened to catch someone speaking Hebrew in the crowd and she wondered... I wonder if they've come for my son. I wonder how often they looked over their shoulders and they just thought about the threat that continued to hang over their son's life. What if someone found them? So much was unknown. They simply had to trust God that his plan for them was perfect, that it would work. That they, not Herod, not this world, not not the challenging circumstances, not not the tragedies, not the sin, that they would triumph, that they were going to win. Not any of those other things. Ultimately, of course, we know that their victory is, like all victories, like all triumphs is, Rooted in Christ defeating death, defeating sin on the cross. That his glorious and triumphant resurrection lays the foundation for every other victory. For every triumph that we have in our own lives. But in a small way you can see that victory playing out. The very first part of it as they leave Egypt. And verse 20 says that they went to the land of Israel and... and and they lived in a city called Nazareth. Even in between those two things, they're on their way, they enter Israel, and then Joseph hears word that Archelaus is reigning. It's Herod's son, that it's gonna be the same. He's gonna to wanna to do what his father was unable to do. And so he's afraid and in his dream, again, God communicates with him and he tells him, you know what, go up to Galilee instead and settle in a place called Nazareth. And I love that even Joseph's fear was used by God to advance God's plan. I love that God uses us in our weakness, amen? That God uses even our weaknesses. And even in that, a prophecy was fulfilled that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now it's worth noting that in this passage alone, in, these, in this short passage, Matthew 2, four separate prophecies come to pass. Four separate Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. In fact, in the entirety of the nativity narrative, I thought this was interesting, more than 300 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the nativity story. Jesus would fulfill them all, each one helping us see that tragedy births triumph. In fact, I want us to see one of these because it's going to help us see the triumph that he has for us. Look at this one. Back in verse 18, of course, we saw that horrible verse about the weeping of mothers. And it was Jeremiah, we're told, who prophesied that. And that was in, that's in Jeremiah 31, 15. But then in the next two verses in Jeremiah's prophecy, we read this. Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Now prophecies can have multi-fulfillments in the future. And, and certainly this is a verse that spoke to the exile that Israel would go into after the time of Jeremiah. But it also speaks to, just in a more general sense, the hope for our future. That God never abandons us. That his plans are always perfect for us. That God will triumph over all your tragedies. That Jesus Christ will make everything right in his time. Amen. In fact, get that underline in your Bibles right there, that one line, and and own that. There is hope for your future. There is hope for your future. Whatever tragedy is on you right now, whatever grief you're bearing, whatever hardship you're experiencing in these moments, there is hope for your future. God's plan is perfect. The birth of Jesus does that. It certainly brings tragedy to light, but it also offers triumph to a hurting world. Now, a very important word in what I just said is that word offers. Because it's not automatic that everyone triumphs as a result of his plan. This is an offer of salvation and relationship. The offer, if I could put it this way, the offer itself is universal in the sense that everyone can hear it and it's being offered to everyone. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That's what we preach. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That part of it is universal. The invitation is universal. But the application is not universal. It's the one who actually calls on the name of the Lord that's saved. And so listen, you've heard this before, all paths lead to God. No, they do not. Or maybe you've heard it this way, that whatever path you're on, Jesus will join you on that path. A popular novel and a movie that's coming out recently uh, pushes that. Whatever path you're on, Jesus is going to join you on that path. No, he is not. Whatever path you're on, stop turn around 180 degrees and walk on the new path to life, the one that leads to Jesus Christ, the road that the Magi took, the road that took them to Bethlehem to kneel beside the bed, to kneel beside the one who was born King of the Jews. And so really the question is, for anyone here who has not done that yet is, is Jesus Christ your king? Have you done what the magi did? Have you come to him and surrendered your life to him to acknowledge who he is? And when you surrender yourself to his lordship, and his kingship in your life. When you do, you'll find the healing that you need. You'll find the grace and the strength to make it through every tragedy of life, to navigate through the incredibly difficult times that this world throws at us. Because you will have him. You will have Jesus, Emmanuel, not only God with us, But God with you, God with you, God with you, God with me. And you will be triumphant over sin and death and all of its effects in this world. Among my favorite songs to sing this time of year is one that's actually more of a lament than anything else it captures the spirit of what we're talking about here. The terribly painful things that we go through in life, but the incredible hope that's at the end of it all. One of the verses says simply this, O come thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel. Amen? Let's stand together and sing that. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.